Welcome back to Biblical Book Review. I'm Kevin. I'm Alec. And I'm George. We are so happy you are joining us for today's study. Last week, we looked at Matthew, the publican. This week, we are in chapter 4. What does chapter 4 have to offer, George? It's the account of Jesus choosing the 12, and these are going to be his closest disciples who will soon become the ones sent, or as our gospel accounts use the word, apostles. And so these 12 men will become the ones that will actually go into all the world and preach the gospel of the good news. Yeah, we're finally at the chapter of 12. I mean, we've been looking at apostles this time and those that were chosen and kind of their backstories, but now we are finally at the training of the 12. Yeah, these are the 12 that were chosen, uh, and this is a great chapter. Uh, there's a lot of uh, good insight in here on why Jesus chose these individuals, uh, kind of the number 12 and its uh, uh, importance, uh, and there's some, there's some great stuff in here, so I'm excited to get into the study. And the idea that Jesus is going to narrow down the, the number of apostles uh, to be to this number, it's fascinating to think that he was so surrounded by disciples. And as we've, we've sort of studied through the first few chapters of this particular book, many people are, are coming and going, and there's this throng of people that kind of crowd around him. And just imagine Jesus being... Uh, looking over the crowd and determining based on the information that he has as God on in you know in the flesh here on earth he looks into the hearts and the minds of these individuals and he says okay I'm picking these 12 out of all the others these are going to be the ones that I choose and so this this landmark of gospel history is about to occur and it's here just before as Luke records just before uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And so when we get into this idea that Jesus is, is choosing, he's, he's making a definite decision on who he is going to choose, and then he's going to send them into all the world. And so what a great, uh, what a great account this is, and we are, we are thrilled to be able to see how Jesus does this uh, when he chooses these 12 men. Yeah, and I like how uh, uh, A.B. Bruce kind of goes into kind of just painting the picture and describing the the multitudes upon multitudes of followers that Jesus had up until this point. Uh, he's performing miracles in his or in and around his home, kind of in a localized area, but he's got such a great following already before the Sermon on the Mount uh, takes place. Uh, and you can just imagine just the, the restriction of movement and just kind of the, the mass of people that are already gathering around him. And he chooses these 12 to have very... Uh, intimate uh, relationship with, kind of a close uh, friendship and mentor and guidance and just kind of focus it in on just a smaller, more manageable number because uh, the multitudes couldn't always be with him all the time. They had their lives to live. They were traveling and they couldn't always be uh, everywhere that he was all the time. But And then the crowds would just be bigger and bigger and bigger. And so this kind of a specific group was chosen. I, I like the way that A.B. Bruce kind of paints that picture in the book. Yeah, I, I found it that, he, you know, Jesus at that time was still kind of working alone, the lone teacher, right? He wasn't teaching other teachers. We, in the fire service, have classes we go to called Train the Trainer. 
So you go to a class and it's more than just your basics. It goes into in-depth on how to teach others whatever the skill may be. And that's where Jesus was here. He was initially, like you said, Alec, he was by himself teaching, but he had a lot of disciples, a lot of people around him. And he was in that same area recognizing that now I can pick these guys and I can take my teaching to the next level so I can teach the teachers. They were to be uh, this this group of 12. They were to be students of Christian doctrine is how A.B. Bruce uh, describes it. They are going to be students of Christian doctrine and occasional fellow laborers in the work of the kingdom. And then he goes on to say they were eventually Christ's chosen trained agents for propagating the faith after he himself would leave the earth. And so just imagine the the process and the procedure and, you know, the steps that would take uh, where Jesus would say, okay, first you're going to be students and then I'm going to put you to work and then I'm going to train you because I'm going to leave and you're going to be my agents here on earth and you're going to you're going to promote this faith. You're going to produce uh, produce this faith in others. And it's because of you and because of this training that the gospel and this kingdom of heaven is going to be increasing and has for the last 20, 21 centuries uh, since the event. And so what a wonderful idea that Jesus would take them from students to occasional fellow laborers to actual trained agents in his kingdom. It's almost like the best pyramid scheme ever. <laughs> and really, and not in like a bad light, you know, all those different things that are selling stuff that are just kind of fake or not that great. This was the truth, right? And Jesus knew that in order to get that truth out and to turn the world upside down, he needed these 12. And it's just crazy how he goes about picking them. And so from the time that they're chosen, Jesus is going to say, here's, here's what I want to see. This is who you should be. This is what you're going to do. Here's, here's what you're going to believe and here's what you're going to teach. And so Jesus never left these guys in the dark to kind of figure it out on their own to say, well, you, how do you feel about it? Or what do you think about it? It's like, here's what I want and here's what's going to happen. And so he takes them and he says, here's what you're going to be. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to believe. Here's what you're going to teach. And you're going to be my witnesses and ambassadors in the world. And if you think about those two words, witnesses and ambassadors, we understand to some degree the idea of witnesses. Uh, when we think of a court of law, we have individuals who are charged with a particular crime and, and the prosecution brings witnesses to bear and he brings them before the judge, before the jury, and he says, now tell us what you saw. Tell us what you heard. And we understand there's rules for witnesses. They can't say, well, this is, this is what I think I heard, or this is what uh, someone else told me. No, there's particular rules. And so these individuals were going to be the ones that actually saw and heard and, and witnessed the very facts of, of what, these, uh, what Jesus was teaching. And then uh, Jesus says, you're going to be my ambassadors. And when we think of that word, we think of an individual who leaves his country and is placed in a foreign country and becomes the uh, intercessory or the, the individual who stands between the governments of his own nation and another nation, and they represent the entire uh, nation as a person. And that's what Jesus is seeing in these 12 men. He's going 
He's going to see them as ambassadors to the world. And so these individuals are a fascinating group of people. And Jesus says, I'm going to put them to work for my kingdom, and they're going to turn the world upside down. I like the idea of the ambassadors, right? And, you know, you explained it exactly what it is. It's leaving your country, going to another country. And as I take this into today's terms, as I try to, you know, mold this to myself, well, when I became a Christian, I became an ambassador. And I don't have to leave my country, though. I don't have to even leave where I grew up or the town that I became a Christian. You know, you hear a lot of people talk about that. Well, you don't have to travel to do mission work. Well, that's correct. But in order to be an ambassador for Christ, you have to leave something. And I believe what you have to leave is your old life behind. And you have to start your new life as that ambassador. You can be in the same geological location, but you are not the same person. And you are you are moving on into that new role as an ambassador. And the idea of being the representative of Christ on earth. What a responsibility. And the ideas that we understand from ambassadors that go into other countries, they are representative of the entire nation. And so if they make a mistake, if they do something foolish, if they they bring a smirk or a, a, a bad mark against the United States because of something they did, then uh, the whole nation suffers. And it's like that with, with the body of Christ. And, it, and we have to understand the, the gravity and the, the immensity of that, that responsibility to be an ambassador of Jesus on earth. Yeah, and it goes to show their, um, the key to their, their study, the key to their uh, spiritual growth as uh, followers of Christ. And I just want to read a sentence from uh, the book here, page 30. It says, From the time of their being chosen, indeed the twelve entered on a regular apprenticeship for the great office of apostleship, in the course of which they were to learn, in the privacy of an intimate daily fellowship with their master, what they should be, do, believe, and teach as his witnesses and ambassadors to the world. And he made it uh, his business to tell them in darkness what they were going to afterwards speak in the daylight and whisper in their ear what, in after the years, they should preach upon the housetops. And the way A.B. Bruce brings that to, to light in his writing, it just it's amazing to think that Jesus is one-on-one with these with these 12 guys and it's it's a private conversation i mean he's teaching them daily it's not just the things that are recorded here in the scripture it's every day every movement every every comment every everything and all of those details now are being proclaimed uh, throughout the world and we are given that great commission to go into all the world and and preach the gospel, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. That's what Jesus has instructed us. And he says, here's everything that needs to be taught and preached. And you too, like Kevin was saying, you too can be this great ambassador to the world for the kingdom of Christ. Yeah, I forget uh, the exact study, but I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about the Great Commission and how... They polled American Christians, which, I mean, we can take that for what it is worth. They asked what the Great Commission was, and it was really sad. I think it was only one out of ten Christians knew what the Great Commission was. It's like, well, how do you even call yourself a Christian if you don't even know what the Great Commission is? And I think that's part of the reason we're in the predicament we are and we are studying this leadership book right now is because we have forgotten what we were supposed to be 
And so the solution is to return to the master teacher, return to the source of this information and say, okay, how did you do it? What was, what was the key to your success? And we start looking at uh, the, the call and the number uh, that uh, Jesus chooses. It's, I believe, very significant uh, number. On page 32 of this particular book, the, the number of the apostolic company uh, is a choice that Jesus decided. And it's, it's a pretty good-sized number. Uh, just imagine, you know, 12, 12 individuals. Uh, this uh, idea that 12 becomes a, a, a working number for Jesus, uh, when you think about uh, the number 12 in the Scripture, Obviously, you can think back in our history, back to the 12 tribes of Israel, and we think about the, the Old Testament and the people of God, the chosen ones of God, the chosen people. Uh, they come from the 12 tribes of, of Jacob. And when we get into the New Testament, uh, we can uh, source our roots all the way back to the 12 apostles because of what they taught, what they witnessed, and the ambassadorship that they carried. And so the idea of, of 12 becomes very symbolic. And then when we get into our future, when we look into uh, the mind of Christ there in the book of Revelation, we see that number occasionally pop up and you say, well, there's, there's that number again, 12, 12, 12. It just seems like it's, it's uh, there quite often. And so the idea of being symbolic, Jesus says, I, I chose 12. He could have chose six. He could have chose 15. He could have chose any number, but he chose 12. And so when we combine the Old Testament and the New Testament, we start to see that this then becomes very symbolic in the, in the mind of, of Christ. And he wants us to see that. In Matthew 19, uh, verse 28, he says, Verily or truly, truly, I say to you that uh, you that have followed me in the, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on the throne of his glory, you will sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so these 12 men very symbolically are placed in a position of ambassadorship, of service, and Jesus says, I know what, exactly what I'm doing, and I'm choosing these 12. And this, the symbol of 12 uh, ra- uh, kind of radiates through the entire scripture, from the old all the way to through to the new. Why, why do you think it's the, I know you've you covered that it's very symbolic, but why the number 12? Like, do we, is there more insight than what we see in the New Testament and in Revelation, what you said? Like, do you have more insight into the number 12? Well, the number 12 was designed uh, to bear that mystic meaning. Uh, and we know from Christ's words uh, that he understands that the 12 tribes are that symbol of all of God's chosen people in the Old Testament. The 12 apostles is that symbol of all of God's uh, followers in the New Testament, in the New Kingdom. And so when we add, we put those all together and the idea that Jesus has covered both old and new with this number 12, this symbol, uh, that's, that's where we get this idea that it's very symbolic. And so uh, there are other studies of numbers throughout the scripture, the 40 days, the, the number seven, the number 10, and number three, and the number four, all those numbers, they have these, these symbolic meanings. And if you go back and start reading and studying uh, books like Ezekiel and Daniel, uh, even uh, Zechariah, some of the uh, uh, the apocalyptic type 
uh, language in the scripture, you start to put together a, a study of, of numbers and the number 12 just keeps popping up. And so it's just interesting to think that Jesus understood that. Of course, he wrote, you know, he wrote those words and of course he understands all the symbols of all, all those numbers, but he gave us that, uh, that ability to look back and go, oh, I, I can kind of see how this ties with the Old Testament, how it ties with the New Testament. And then you get to a number like uh, the, the number 144,000. Well, if you uh, were paying attention to math class, 12 times 12 is what? Well, it's 144. And then what's 10 times 10 times 10? Well, you take, if you wanted a number for perfection, if you wanted a number that would symbolize perfection, you would take the number 12 from the Old Testament, take the number 12 from the New Testament, you take the number 10, which is perfection, and then you, you cube number 10 and you square number 12 and you multiply all that together and you come up with this perfect number. It's not an actual number. It's not literally 144,000. There's many more saints than that. But the perfect number, uh, when we see it in the, in the symbolic language of Revelation, then you start to see, oh, I see. Jesus knows everyone who's saved. No one is going to be forgotten. Everyone that is part of the kingdom, whether old or new, uh, Jesus says, I know you. And so that's the idea of numbers and the symbolic uh, uh, ramifications of all those numbers throughout Scripture. And it's another fascinating study, and we may get to that uh, someday in the future. <laughs> yeah, and just really just the number 12 for the 12 apostles themselves, it would hold some very symbolic meaning for them. They would be able to see these uh, numbers like you're talking about and see the significance of it. And uh, baby Bruce says that it significantly hinted that Jesus was the messianic king of Israel come to set up the kingdom whose advent was foretold by the prophets in glowing language suggested by the palmy uh, days of Israel's history when the theocratic community existed in its integrity and all the tribes of the chosen nation were under the royal house of David. And so this number 12 it just it points to Jesus as the Messiah. It points to Israel's history under David when they were all united and not divided and uh, you know fallen away and, and and non-existent anymore. And it just it points to Jesus as the, that true uh, God, uh, as who he who he says he is. And so the numbers have that specific meaning, not just to us as we're studying it, but to them, the apostles themselves. They would have seen that. Uh, and if they were paying attention, like you're talking about, they would have they would have understood this to have that significance there, and then that brings it right into uh, Jesus's style of teaching. Which uh, again, there on, on page 33 of AB Bruce, he says uh, he has um, a method of procedure in his teaching. In all things, he was to abide then that in itself what was true and right, and then correct the misapprehensions as they arose. So Jesus would always stick to the truth, always stick to what was right and what was real uh, for specific reasons, symbolic or uh, physical or spiritual or whatever they were. And then as error arose, he would correct it as it came. And so it wasn't more of Jesus seeking out error, seeking out problems, seeking out things. It was, I'm going to abide in the truth. You're going to follow me, the apostles. And when error arises, we're going to confront it, but we're going to keep going on the truth path. Yeah, I find the all of that to be very comforting, even though back in elementary school, math gave me anxiety. Now, it's a comfort. <laughs> <laughs> well, this idea where we, 
we, we look back at Matthew chapter 10, and we go, okay, who are they? And if you were in a vacation Bible school when you were young, or when, if you were uh, you know, growing up and your mom and dad took you to a Bible class, and the, the teachers would say, we're going to learn the, the names of the 12 apostles, and they would take you to Matthew 10. Well, we've already kind of looked at some of these from John chapter 1, Andrew, Peter, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew. We've, we've kind of gone through a bunch of these names uh, to this point already in our study with the uh, training of the 12. And so when we, we see that uh, uh, Thomas, uh, he has uh, been given a, a kind of a negative moniker uh, because of his, uh, he skipped uh, service one, one week. <laughs> and, uh, that's all it takes. You know, that's all it takes. Like, what'd you miss last week? Well, I'll believe it if I see it, he says. And so we call him oh, the only, doubter. Yeah, you know, only the resurrection. Thomas. Uh, but I love, I love his response when he realized who Jesus really is when he said, my Lord and my God. But it's also interesting when we look in Matthew uh, chapter 10, uh, we see uh, Thomas is described here uh, as the, uh, uh, let's see, let me read it here. Philip, Bartholomew, Zebedee, where is Thomas in the list? Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax gatherer. Well, it's, it's found uh, in uh, other parts of the scripture. Thomas is called Didymus, which is uh, defined as the twin. Now, that's always uh, fascinated me. I've always wondered, when you call someone the twin, who is he referring to as far as who does he look like? And if he had a twin brother... He wouldn't. I don't think they'd call him the twin. I don't. I don't know if it. If, if that's the case, or if if he looked like someone that is very famous. And I wonder. I wonder if Thomas and Jesus looked alike. I wonder if, when Thomas walked in, and Jesus walked in, I wonder if they'd say, "Man, that's that's the twin. Look, they look alike." But that's just speculation. I always wondered. Uh, what have you guys? Uh, uh, learned or, or thought about the idea of Didymus being called the twin. That is something that's always puzzled me, especially reading this chapter, like the twin, because you go through, you know, Simon Peter is the rock. Andrew is, you know, takes people to Jesus. You got the sons of thunder. I think I would have liked to be one of the sons of thunder. <laughs> that's just cool. Right. Or the guileless Israelite for Bartholomew. And you get down to the, you know, Matthew the publican. We already went over that, but the twin, it's like, I, I don't know. I didn't really spend. I, didn't, I just don't get it. I don't get it. And what you're saying sounds good, but I think that there's sometimes that we are have those things that are supposed to make us, you know, ponder. Because not only do we ponder about that, but we also we're in the scripture we're pondering about Christ and it, you know the the idea of Christianity is trying to understand God and theology, and I, I think that's why we don't have all the answers. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And the idea that. That Thomas is called Didymus, I uh, always find that interesting. And then his his temperament, uh, because of his you know unwillingness to believe everything that he hears, he's got to investigate. Uh, he has this temperament of uh, investigation, and I think we can learn some valuable lessons from Thomas because it's okay to doubt. It's okay to say, "Really, is that true? Can I can I prove that? Can I look to the Scripture and find the information?" And so Thomas sets that good example. And then, of course. Uh, at the end of the scale, 
And always the last one mentioned in every list is uh, Judas. And it's like, it's, it's sad uh, that he, make the, he makes that choice. And he's really the only city boy. He, everybody else is basically from the country. And he is uh, Iscariot or from a particular region of Kerioth. Uh, the book of Joshua kind of gives us that from the border of the tribe of Judah. So he's, he's kind of a city boy. And it's, it's sad that he makes the choices that he makes. And uh, I believe he always had an opportunity to return. I believe just like Peter, when Peter wept bitterly, Judas is described in Scripture as weeping bitterly, and yet the two men make different choices. And, you know, when they're both down, when they're both uh, been uh, tricked and, and uh, you know, led astray by Satan's temptations, uh, when they're both weeping bitterly, uh, Judas doesn't come to his senses, and Peter does. And so we have this list, these 12 individuals, and they basically uh, always kind of give us the same outline of all these individuals. And I, I find it interesting that Judas is always in last place in the list. Yeah, and... Uh... I always, you know, I always think about it because, you know, Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. He knew it before he chose him, uh, but he chose him anyway. And he chose him because it was God's design for the betrayal to happen, the uh, arrest, the, the mock trial of Jesus, the, the crucifixion. All of that had to have taken place in order for God's divine plan to uh, succeed. Uh, and so when we look at some of these things and, and you know, we, people ask the question, well, why didn't, why did Jesus, why did Jesus pick Judas if he knew that's what he was going to do? Well, Jesus was always following the plan of God, always, uh, even to, you know, his own physical, uh, detriment there. You know, we, I, I look at the garden when he's praying in the garden and he's, 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 his sweat is like blood is described in scripture and he's praying to God and says, please let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, if there's any other way, let it be. But if not, your will be done. And I, I see that with Judas here, and, and he, he knows that's what Judas is going to do. And I know that uh, A.B. Bruce is going to go into uh, another chapter uh, more specifically on Judas himself. But just seeing him in the list here and having this, these all these individuals, and then Judas is, is one of them, and then he was there since the, since uh, at least the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, and all the things that he witnessed, and all these things, and he still went through with his betrayal, uh, and how how he got to that, I, I don't know, and I don't know how he, he wrapped his mind around it, but, uh, uh, and then obviously we know that he didn't, in the end, he, he ultimately uh, ended himself, but, uh, uh, just knowing the plan of God and Jesus knowing the plan of God in this instance and still going through with it, it's just, um, it's interesting. And it's something that, you know, sometimes I struggle with and other people probably have struggled with as well, trying to wrap your minds around around that. But the comfort I have in it is Jesus is always going to do the plan of God, no matter what. Well, yeah, and then going back to what George said, as far as the, you know, they both made their mistakes, they both were deceived, they both, you know, wept bitterly. And then they both made a choice. And you said one came to his senses. I, I believe it's not coming to their senses. I believe it's coming to Jesus. Yeah, Peter went to Jesus. And then Judas didn't. And then mm. I think we can bring that into our lives. Is 
yes, we are going to, we are going to make mistakes and we are going to realize how wrong we are and we are going to wait, you know, weep bitterly. And then we need to go to Jesus because obviously our senses and what we thought led us to that exact moment in our lives where we were there. I don't want to rely on myself at that point. I want to go to Jesus. And then the, the, the next few on the list, they're very, very obscure, almost, in fact, not almost, but just literally unknown. And you think about this third group, you think of James, the son of Alphaeus, and uh, Judas of James, or Thaddeus, whichever uh, uh, list you're in, and Simon the Zealot. It's like, who are these guys? And you, th- you start looking into the scripture, and you say, well, here's, here's what we know, and it's very, very limited, but these individuals were also very important to the plan of Jesus, uh, this idea of, of choosing someone uh, called James, the son of Alphaeus. I believe Mark uh, lists him as James the Less because James and John were the sons of Zebedee or like Kevin mentioned, the sons of Thunder. And so here's another James. And so James, the son of Alphaeus, he's uh, described differently. Then uh, we have this uh, Judas, possibly another Judas uh, that's uh, Thaddeus uh, in another uh list, but he's got actually three different names uh, that are found in the scripture. And you wonder, who are these guys? And it's, it's, we have very limited information. And yet, each of them is uh, valuable in the in the in the list. And as far as Jesus making the choice, they had something to offer, uh, even though we don't, uh, we're not given that information. And then of course, the big, the big difference between Matthew and uh, the tax collector and this last one, Simon the Zealot. Uh, what do you guys know or what have you uh, studied about Zy- Simon the Zealot? Well, uh, you know, my understanding, uh, the Zealots were a political <laughs> uh, party of individuals, and they, they followed a, a man by the name of Judas uh, years before Jesus came, and Judas is this Judas claimed to be, you know, the Messiah or a form of Messiah coming to rescue the Israelites from their oppressors of Rome uh, and kind of reestablish the the nation there. And he brought up a a, a fairly large following of individuals called the Zealots, uh, and they were basically anti-governmental <laughs> uh, warriors, uh, and they would go up against the, the Roman uh, occupying, occupying forces there and uh, kill them, attack them, kind of uh, guerrilla tactics type things, and all sorts of uh, violence against uh, the Roman government, and especially uh, tax gatherers. And so I find it very interesting uh, that this group of uh, zealots uh, that... Uh, Judas, this uh, this leader, uh, died off uh, years ago. He was killed, uh, and his kind of rebellion was squashed. But they had a lot of uh, followers still that were still alive and still very active uh, in uh, the community there. And the two people that would be so against each other would be tax gatherers and zealots. And and last week we looked at a tax gatherer by the name of Matthew, <laughs> and he just so happens to be one of the twelve. And so I always. I always found it interesting, you know, Jesus looks right through all of this kind of political and human and physical and all this nonsense and selects these these people and puts them together. And Matthew and Simon 
on any other circumstances would never be seen together, never be in the same room together, never survive a meeting. <laughs> and uh, I know one of them would uh, probably die, and it would probably be Matthew. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but Jesus brings them together, uh, and Simon, and, and that's really, that's all we know about. Like you're talking about, there's these three groups of uh of apostles, you know, you have your first group, you got Simon, Peter, uh, Andrew, James, and John. The second group we know some about, uh, Philip, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, Thomas, and Matthew. And then this third group that we know nothing about, James of Alphaeus, uh, Judas, uh, Thaddeus, the, and then Simon the Zealot, and then obviously Judas Iscariot there. But Simon the Zealot is this one we don't know really anything about, but we know a lot about the Zealots. We know a lot about who they were. And so he gets this moniker here in Scripture and so we don't really know a whole lot about him individually, but we do know a lot about the zealots. And I just I find it very interesting that Jesus would have chosen one of these people to be part of his uh, twelve apostles. And I believe the uh, the understanding the the scholars have looked into this political party of the zealots, and they were the ones that would carry a a small dagger like sword in their in the folds of their robe and they would they would wish they would plead for a moment alone with one roman soldier you know when jesus says if a soldier asks you to go walk a mile walk two miles and these zealots would say i'll walk with you a mile and they would they would kill him i mean they would do they would do one-offs i mean it was uh, if a Roman soldier happened to uh, rub shoulders with a zealot, they'd probably get a sword uh, right in them. And so they were these these terrorists. I mean, they they were politically malcontent. They they wouldn't stand for this uh, conquering kingdom of the the Romans. And so Jesus chooses him. And the contrast between Jesus and this this zealot. Just, you know, the idea that Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. And the zealot is saying, we want a kingdom on this earth. We want this kingdom. And we want it to be national. And I'm, I'm this patriot. I'm, I'm this one that will stand. I'm, I feel like I'm alone. And that's zealot, the Simon the zealot. And Jesus, it's, it's exactly opposite. It's purely spiritual. Uh, not physical at all. And it's like, oh, you got to be kidding. And so Simon is going to be using these, these weapons of war. And Jesus is going to be this omnipotent force of truth. And so you see that massive contrast. And then like Alec was saying, the contrast between someone like Matthew, uh, who is actually working for the Roman government, and then someone like Simon, the zealot, who is fighting against the government of Rome. And so it's like, what a, what an interesting uh, talk around the fire each night with those two individuals as well as with Jesus. And so what, a, what an interesting group of people. Yeah, and I like the way that uh, A.B. Bruce writes this uh, there on page 36. He says, He wished the Twelve to be the church in miniature or germ, and therefore he chose them as so to imitate that as among the distinctions of publican and zealot were unknown. So in the church of the future, there should be neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, bond or free, but only Christ, all to each and in each of the all. And that's an that's a interesting quote of Galatians 3.28. And the idea that 
Jesus says, this is the church, a miniature version of the church. And just think about that. Think about where you attend worship. And you think about the, the differences of opinions, the differences of political uh, flavor and color and all the different things. You say, that's exactly right. How can we possibly get along? Well, the only answer is in Christ. That's the answer. And Jesus says, I'm going to show you how it's done. And this is the very germ or the very uh, a tiny version of the church to be. And I think it's one of those things we can easily forget. I mean, we go back just a couple of years into the timeline from now to the, the beginning of the COVID, COVID days, um, which just, we weren't ready for that. We weren't ready to have it just be Christ. One for all and all for one, like a musketeer. That's, that reminds me of that last little sentence there. We were so divided in our ways of what we thought politically and what was correct. We forgot it doesn't matter. It's all about Christ. And the idea that Peter is always the first on the list, he's this rock, and, and Jesus sees him as the leader. But it's interesting, just like in the body of Christ today, there are leaders of the church, and there are others in the church who are just as important. You think about James the Less. I mean, can you imagine if you had that title uh, where you worship, if if you came to worship and people would call you George the Less, all right, well, that's sometimes there has to be someone there to follow. And so there are uh, all these different personalities, all these different talents, and all these different things in this group of 12 men, and Jesus says it's going to be like that, and we can get along. And that's uh, what we're called to do as the church. We're we're one in Christ. And so there are times when someone just has to say, well, if that's the case, then act like it. If you're one in Christ, then act like it. <laughs> I dibs one of the thunder names. You can yeah. be George less. <laughs> no one else is going to call them their kid George, so I think you're okay. <laughs> George the only. That's right. My yeah. mom had a sense of humor. That's right, for sure. No, I, I find it funny here, not funny, I should say. It's really intriguing to me how they were they were chosen. On the outside, they were poor, some illiterate, and really devoid of social status, right? They didn't have that. And we look at the in internals, and that's what Christ was obviously looking at, was what was inside of them. And it was simply that they were sincere, they were energetic, they were humble, and they were devoted to him. And when I read this part of the book, it really reminded me of going through a selection for the military for a special forces job. They don't care what you look like. They don't care how fit you think you are. They don't care what family you came from. They don't care about anything except for that you're not going to quit. That's the one thing they want to find out. And as soon as they find out that you're not going to quit, then they're going to train you and they're going to teach you exactly everything they need you to do. And that's kind of what I believe Christ did with his 12 is he found these men and he kind of found the ones that it didn't matter what their social status, what their education, any of those things. He found the ones that weren't going to quit. And then he's like, all right, I got the ones that are not going to quit. Now I'm going to teach you what you need to know so you can continue and carry out what I need you to do. Yeah, and, and again, A.B. Bruce says, these were hardly the persons to send forth as missionaries of the cross, Men so fettered by social ties and 
party connections and so enslaved by the fear of men, the apostles of Christianity must be made of sterner stuff. (laughs) So when you think about these individuals and, and A.B. Bruce kind of sums it up, he says, here's, here's kind of what we can see and what we can learn from how Jesus chose these 12 men. He wants these men to be witnesses and ambassadors for him. And they accompanied him from the beginning. What we can learn is it does not take a great man to make a good witness. And you think about that just for a moment. Be witnesses of Christ. These men, as uh, some of them, uh, so obscure in history, so obscure in the scriptures that we, we know very little about them, they were still good witnesses. And the purpose of history is served by recording the words and deeds of the representative men. And so we look back at the history of the church. We look back at the history of the ministry of Jesus. And we, we, we rely on these good witnesses. And so it doesn't take a great man to make a good witness. Even though men like Peter, men like James and John, men like Thomas, uh, Matthew, these were great men. But then there were others and it's like, well, they were still good witnesses. And then these, uh, the eminent men, the one that stood out, the 25%, you know, if you look at the uh, Peter, James, and John, the ones that are always with Jesus, these three individuals, uh, even in their rank, in, in those three individuals, they were so, so much diverse in their, in their gifts as far as their ability to preach, their ability to teach, their, their ability to share. And we have... Uh, a couple of examples in the book of Acts with both Peter and uh, with uh, uh, Paul, but we have, uh, it's interesting to think that uh, Peter is going to be the first to preach the gospel in, in you know, the, the day of Pentecost and, and his gift of leadership. And then you, you look at, at John when he writes the gospel in the, in the book of Revelation in his three letters, and you think of him as this, this great leader and you, you, you compare these two. Uh, sometimes there's, diversity of gifts and so we have to understand that sometimes in this in the church there are individuals who are great and let's let's hold them up let's lift them up and then there are other times when people say i've got a gift too and i can use that for god's glory and so when we understand sometimes about this uh when we don't know about individuals there are individuals in the background that are that are doing some great work even though uh, there's no accolades. There's no record of it. Uh, the apostles understood they were not the theme. They were not the main event. Christ was the hero. And so that's, that's how A.B. Bruce sums up the, the lessons we can learn from the choosing of these 12 uh, individuals, these 12 apostles to be. I believe the takeaway here is be a good witness. If you strive to be exalted or to be that person that's in the, you know, that first group of apostles here, you know, as we're studying this, then if you're doing that out of arrogance, you're going to be a poor witness, right? And you're going to be useless. The one thing we should strive for is to be a good witness. And then everything else will fall into place as far as what God's going to use for your talent. Your only concern is I'm going to be a good witness. Yeah. And then his, his second point there, this, this idea of, not everybody is a leader. It's, it's just as bad to have all leaders than it is to have no leaders. <laughs> you need 
uh, specific individuals that are talented with the gifts to lead and then those that have the gift to follow and you need both uh, in the role and then ultimately the goal is to exalt Christ. It's not about myself. It's not about how good I am. It's not about how all the great works that I've done. It's how can we elevate Christ in what we are doing? And that was ultimately the, the apostles' goal. I think it's worse to have all leaders. <laughs> way worse. Yeah. Way less constructive. And the way he ends the chapter, and the way A.V. Bruce writes, I'm just I'm, I'm thrilled that we can get people reading this particular book, but look at the very last sentence of chapter 4. In page 40, they gazed steadfastly at the Son of Righteousness, and in his effulgence they lost sight of the attendant stars, whether they were stars of the first magnitude or of the second or of the third, made little difference. We don't talk like that anymore. We don't <laughs> write like that anymore. That is, that's beautiful imagery and the idea of gazing at the sun of righteousness. It doesn't matter. You know, if I'm, if I'm a leader or if I'm a follower, if I have a particular gift in, in a, a visitation or a gift of, of fellowship or a gift of, you know, whatever the gift I have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Christ shine. And when the sun comes out, guess where the stars are? They're still there. You just can't see them. Why? Because the sun is out. And that's the imagery that A.B. Bruce leaves with us when, the, when Jesus chooses these 12 men. Yeah, so we're, we're encouraging you to go outside and stare at the sun because then everything else will fade away. <laughs> I think that's what it meant, Alex. No, that's not what it meant. But that's the imagery. <laughs> Stop talking. Yeah, you need to... Read again. Read the, <laughs> read, read, read the chapter, Alex. <laughs> we leave you with these questions. Jesus trained the 12 men and turned the world upside down. Can you explain how this astounding work took place? Jesus preferred devoted men rather than men of worldly stature or learning. Why is it important to find devoted people to disciple? If you were beginning to disciple others right now, what would they be able to learn from you about walking with Christ? Thank you so much for joining us for today's study. Yeah, thank you very much.